Welcome to Frontline. Hello and welcome to Frontline. My name is David Gill. And I'm Andrew James. And in this episode, we are having a part two following on from the last episode discussing trauma-informed practice. We discussed why this was important in the previous one. I think it's worth just to, to, to just jump on in with it again, just in case someone's had a bit of a break between listening to the last one and this one. But ultimately, we felt that this is a subject we've naturally been touching upon in the uh, first few pods that we've been doing because it's just the topic that everyone wants to be talking about at the minute for for a valid reason as in it just seems to be morally and ethically the, the way forward but to talk about it all in just one pod felt like we were perhaps giving it a disservice and even though we're calling this I guess a, a part two this isn't to say that this will end here as well I mean this is something that I imagine as we've talked about with the other pods but this one in particular it will naturally progress into a part three, a part four, and who knows what else. So don't see this as the end point, but just see this as a direct continuation. And maybe a few months down the line, we'll, we'll, we'll explore it even more because there are so many people want to talk about this subject. Today, it's about looking at things a little bit more holistically, a bit more generally as well, because last episode we were talking about how 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 the, the the challenges of embedding this in and how it is a, about going away and applying this to to your services and your practices so so like i said looking at it today a little bit more general maybe look at some of the core challenges and 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 worries and anxieties that people have and how you can maybe challenge them andrew if we are talking about looking at this in this kind of holistic way then what 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 does that mean for you then what's what's your thoughts on that it would be how you take the uh, the approach, the trauma-informed approach, and direct it across all facets of the industry or the work that you do, rather than just your individualist individual working uh, on a one-to-one basis or even in a group setting. It'd be how you cover it across every sort of aspect throughout the uh, the business and industry. There'd be a lot of different ways and different challenges that you'd have doing that. And I guess it'd be all about how you'd not necessarily get uniformity because safety in one area would look very different to kind of safety in another area, I guess. But it's how to create that sort of consistency of approach and idea of safety throughout. This is often one of the, the huge challenges I have is, is how you kind of get across, like you said, that level of consistency whilst recognising individual needs for a service. And if you look at all the literature out there, all the the academic studies around this, this has often been the biggest challenge is how how do you develop something that's an ethos, an approach, a culture shift, a culture change? How do you apply it to something which has classically relied on data targets, key performance indicators to demonstrate how effective it is? And I think it's, it's probably worth as a starting point, talking about the trauma practice framework that the Welsh government have produced. 
I know we briefly touched upon that in the previous pod. I, I mentioned it. I didn't really talk about it in some detail. But this, this comes from a, a document uh, called Trauma Practice Framework, Trauma-Informed Wales, a societal approach to understanding, preventing, and supporting the impacts of trauma and adversity. And what's great about it is, is that they talk about this approach for everyone in, in the, the I, I guess, the, the world of education, health, social community, of just creating a fairer, happier, more caring society, which, let's face it, who doesn't want that? And I, I think what they've managed to do that we, when I say we, I mean the rest of the UK in particular here in England need to adopt, is they've built this, this level. And it starts with being trauma-informed, which is basically saying that society needs to have this. We need to have this approach, which is about understanding that you know, everyone potentially can be affected by this. And then it's about this stepped approach of understanding that for everyone who works with human beings, we need to be what we call trauma-aware, having this basic understanding and applying and starting to think about how you can apply this to the roles that you do. The next level is what's called trauma skilled, which is building on that awareness and starting to think about the tools, the interactions that you use and really starting to unpick everything you do and start to look at it through this trauma informed lens. And then the, the, the last step is what they call trauma enhanced, which is about for, for those people who are very skilled, perhaps working with people with quite complex needs, quite complex roles, perhaps, or just have got natural affinity to working in this way maybe that they're acting as a champion within their service I, I guess something we can talk about a little bit more as well and this trauma enhanced level is kind of seen at the peak there is another level above that but that's called specialist and the idea that's for people who work in specialist services you're talking about mental health nurses psychologists psychiatrists nhs the idea is when you are using clinical medical models to support and help people but what I like about this is it's giving a bit of structure, which, as you mentioned, it's also giving that consistency, but it's not overly prescriptive. It doesn't say you must do this to be trauma aware. It's more about these are the areas to be trauma enhanced. These are the areas to consider. It's almost like it's encouraging people to set their own benchmarks. These, This is the framework. This is the guidance. This is your benchmark. And this is what we, we suggest you should do. In terms of learning styles or how people approach, certainly a, approach personal improvements and, and personal advancements in, in work. I know I myself, I really struggle to adopt things if on a prescriptive level, it's done because you have to. If it's a, no, well, this is that, then that, you have to do it. And then the reason for it and the gains are never spelled out or put forward the the, the the explanation is never put forward i always find it a lot more difficult to learn and embed something in that instance whereas this framework is the exact way that i would like to learn the way i would like to approach things because it it entirely sets out well these are the benefits of your learning areas this is what you will be able to do this is how your approach and your entire practice will improve and it's not it's not a simple you do your steps one by one. It's basically you take these areas into consideration. You try to just bring these into your general day-to-day -day practice. It, In terms of how I learn and how I practice, it seems a lot more digestible 
for the way I practice. I know that obviously everyone is different and it may some other people who do prefer that kind of uh, more more rigid set approach, it may find it a little more difficult to get their head around something which is a little more free form, I guess. But um, yeah, the, the, the way that's set out is it's certainly a lot more in keeping with how I would, how I prefer to uh, to learn and develop. One of the areas that people can get stuck on around this, and as someone that I guess works in this, this world, it's something I often talk about, is that there, there can be a, f- a fixation on the word training. How do you get people trained about, about this? And I think for whatever reason, I do worry that training has become in, or has become a bit of a negative word in this field now. It's starting to be seen as a tick box. And a lot of people are describing trauma-informed support, trauma-informed awareness to staff as more of education than, than training. And that's definitely the route that I take with it as well when I'm, I'm, when I'm delivering sessions to people. I, I give people the information, the understanding, the brain development, the impact of what, tra- what, what trauma does. Because if people feel like they're brought along for the journey, as you mentioned you, yourself, if you feel like you're there, then you're more likely to, 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 to go along with it. And I, I always put myself in the shoes of what I was like years and years ago as a frontline worker when I went on my own training courses. I hated when I felt like I wasn't given any autonomy and I was told, this is how you think, this is how you do. But but trauma-informed approach is, is about really delving into the, the core principles of this, the core values. And it reminds us why we're doing what we're doing which sounds so obvious, but I think, again, as we were talking about in, in previous pods, that the world has come, become so chaotic and crazy over the last few years. We have been fixated on firefighting. You only have to look at the last few years with the pandemic, the cost of living crisis. We're missing often the time to just sit down and remind ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. What this is about, and again, what this framework helps us do, is basically delve right down to our core values of, why on earth do you do jobs like this? Why do you get out of bed in the morning to do this and not going to a shop or not going to a bank or going somewhere else? It really does drill down into those, the, those core values. And it brings people along for the journey. Again, some of the most successful learning events I've had with people is when they've felt that they have been brought along and at the end of the day, come to you and say, I feel energized, I feel positive. I'm thinking about how I can go away and apply this to what I do. That has to be thought about. And that's why for me, this word training, whatever your thoughts are on it, I am starting to move away slightly from this and think about more learning, education, development, I guess, whatever phrase we want to use for that. Seeing this as as more of a development or an educational shift definitely gives it a lot more. It seems to put more the more respect onto the term and, and the process that it that it deserves. If if we just look at it. Again, I mentioned this in the previous one, so I'm not going to dwell on it. If we just look at it as a tick box, people are given a bit of a taste of what they could have and are not then given the opportunity to to think about how they embed this into their practice. Or they're not considering maybe how all aspects of the organisation take this forward. You know, how, how is this going to affect our policies and procedures? How is this going to affect how our admin staff interact with people, how our reception staff? We've got building maintenance crews. You know, how what's it like when they go out? We've got finance teams. They have to send finance and arrears letters out, you know, if you work in housing or something. you It becomes that ripple effect. You've got to consider how many of these areas uh, has to be thought about because 
bottom line is if you are taking this approach, it does naturally lead into everywhere, which which is often, again, one of the critiques of this is that it can be so overwhelming for people. It's just people just don't know where to start. But again, it's, it's always just reminding people it's just start somewhere and you can build that up. The, the approach, it, it is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, it's not something that you quickly race to getting through. It has to be, has to be, you know, there has to be a proper thought process and a way to kind of get this throughout. And I guess there's lots of ways that it can be done on done to make sure that can be done. But the one that I think we were wanting to discuss today mainly was the prospect of things like steering groups to um, get that conversation going and to get that situation moving forward. It it is the way forward. The, the the bottom line is if if you do value this approach, you've got to find a way to embed it into your organization that goes beyond just the day-to-day stuff. There has to be that added value. And some form of working group has to be part of this. And and my experience, it's about supporting people with two working groups, internal and external working groups. So the, the first style I would say would be the internal working group. So say you are a service where senior management was sat around, we realized this is the way forward. You start to look at everything. You start to get over first and think, bloody hell, where do we start? This is where your internal working group can work. A range of different people. People work from central teams, admin teams, frontline, managerial, senior managers, volunteers. You literally get them in a room, throw different ideas and just see what sticks. Start bouncing ideas off look at it, look at policies and procedures, look at terminology, look at assessment processes, and start to just almost build out this approach internally, where you start to identify where where the good practice is and where maybe some of the development areas are. And working with organizations in the past, I've often proposed and supported them develop things like a champion model. And again, champion's a strange one. It's a term that some people like, others dislike immensely so you know we've had trauma-informed leads trauma-informed champions but the idea with this is about giving someone empowering people within your organization to take this forward and give them some protected time even if it's just meeting up for an hour a month or an hour every other month or giving some protected time to just look and, and start to think about how they could change things the investment that you give them in that you get out of it tenfold because they can start to think about learning opportunities, training opportunities, again, whatever term you want to use for that. You start to see the paperwork. You start to see improved practices. You naturally also start to see improved well-being for staff because you start to see things like vicarious trauma being talked about. You start to see empathy fatigue being discussed and finding ways to respond to it, to, to deal with it. And that is fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. You start to see this internal world grow. But you and I both know one key thing about this, whether you work for an organization, big or small, when you work within something, you sometimes get that tunnel vision, the blinkers are on because you are so used to that working culture. And as wonderful as an internal working group is, these champions groups are, one of the things that, that I've started to see has been really beneficial. I, I've got a couple of examples that I've seen recently and one that I, I sit on and, and, and it's absolutely fantastic. The passion that comes out of it is a working group in a locality or an area where you don't just get one service. You get a diff, range of different services come together either around a table or a virtual 
Zoom table and you just share good practice, you share ideas. Because if you are, say, a housing charity and over there is a drugs charity, you might be doing very similar things. But one service might have picked upon a way of working that the other service just hasn't before. And to be in a, in a, in a meeting like that, where you can easily miss these things and to say, oh, we tried this on our assessment processes and the and the feedback has been amazing. Brilliant. Can we try that? Yeah, absolutely. Next meeting, you could bring something to the table. It's also worth having these groups because there is so much happening and changing the world of trauma-informed practice that there's new publications all the time, new studies. Even someone like myself who spends day, day after day exploring it, I miss things. So to have environments like this where people can bounce ideas and share things off is absolutely fantastic. And the one in particular that I, I, I sit on is uh, the working group in Leeds. And so it's all different organisations based in Leeds. I'm going to have our guest on in a minute to talk about that in a bit more detail. But it's just great. The positivity that you feel from people just coming together, sharing ideas and having, I guess, no other expectation than sharing and learning and, and bouncing ideas off each other. It's absolutely phenomenal. And you can just see in just a short space of time the difference it's made to people. And I know that just the words can be a little bit off-putting in certain times, you know, steering groups. We, we've all been in certain team meetings and situations where things have been set up to discuss uh, policies or things like that, and they've they can and I stress can, not do, but can d descend into, you know, uh, snarking or things like that. But regardless of what you think of the approach of the, the of trauma for practice, the simple fact of if we think, look at internal steering groups or internal uh, groups like this is to what's not to benefit from when you're constantly reviewing and developing practice how how can you possibly lose out if you're looking at new and more dynamic ways or new and smarter approaches to to, to different to different um, processes and things that you've perhaps been you've been doing one way for years, but then you find out that someone else has got this completely different and much faster and better idea. Everyone benefits, hmm. and then when you look into it in the external point of view, again, regardless of what your thoughts are of the trauma informed process and the practices, we do work in dynamic fields policies change all the time needs of services partner services change all the time if you're not aware of that then problems can occur and they can occur quickly Absolutely. so to have these connections with state with, with steering groups uh, and with the communications it just makes sure things are connected and everything runs better so it th these things to my mind just are just the, the most clearest and most basic common of sense that the, they are necessities realistically mm. and, and i guess the word trauma or trauma informed is often used to get people sat around the table and yes that is always going to be your focus but as you say you naturally start talking about other areas as well even just having that conversation with hang on what's happened to that service oh yeah they're not running anymore they're now being taken over by this all right, so what do they do? Oh, slightly different, but the idea is you just bounce ideas off or you build informal connections as much as the formal connections as well. That's, again, I, I will say that to people. Trauma-informed is like your umbrella and everything tends to sit under it. You can put this trauma-informed lens on absolutely anything. 
and not feeling that everything has to be really strict. Again, the the working group that I'm part of in Leeds, the 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 flexibility, the bit, the ability to pivot has been phenomenal because they they recognise that having all this expertise together, throw ideas out, bounce, share, see what we can come out of it. And it's it, again, as I, as I said, it's it's something that I I always uh, value when I'm able to attend. Just how much you can get out of it. I guess at this point, it's probably worth bringing our guest. And hopefully, when people listen to this, if you are interested in this, this is something that you can maybe go away and, and replicate in your own areas as well. Hello and welcome to our guest and we will begin with who are you and where are you from? Um, So my name is James Allen, I am from Leeds and I work for an organisation called Turning Lives Around and I lead a service called Beacon and we work with clients who face multiple disadvantage and Beacon is essentially a supported accommodation service. We have free hostel environments and over 200 dispersed properties. Would you be okay explaining about your trauma-informed journey, where you've got to and, uh, and, and perhaps where you've come from? Yeah, so for us, in terms of Beacon, it probably started about five or six years ago. And it started with a really interesting talk I heard from um, a representative from YMCA. And they talked about their trauma-informed work and their outcomes. And, I, and it kind of really resonated. It made me feel like when, when I was thinking back to being a support worker, it's like, oh, yes, things started to click into place. And I thought... I'd really like to implement that. So I joined Beacon as a service which went live in 2017. And at the beginning of that, I thought, right, we're going to have to implement trauma-informed. A high percentage of our clients come from that sort of background with trauma, adverse childhood experiences. So as it came into the service, we created um, a strategic plan and we had trauma-informed as part of that. And obviously, we started to roll out an implementation or we had plans to roll out an implementation. Obviously, COVID struck. So the world had slightly different plans for us. And that kind of started, I think it was about November 2020. We started to think about training the staff, getting the managers together. And at the same time, I also felt like we really needed to have some sort of steering group or some sort of project level group to keep this implementation going. So I decided to set up a steering group and ideally I wanted people from externally from outside of the organization to be part of that because we wanted that kind of scrutiny. We wanted that, that kind of support and challenge. We wanted a diversity of perspectives. So in November 2020, we also set up the steering group. And then obviously a couple of years later, we are where we are now, where we're still very much part of our journey. We've trained all the staff. We've got training for new starters kind of embedded as well. But, you know, I don't think we're anywhere near where we'd like to be in terms of trauma responsive, but we're definitely working towards that. How did you start that up? How did you start those conversations up and with other external organizations? Yeah, I think we just kind of, I kind of reached out to people who, some people I knew, some people I knew were kind of critical organizations. Some organizations I knew where they were already doing their own trauma-informed work, and I wanted to bring that together. So originally, I think we started off with eight members, reached out to eight people, and that also started off with lived experience as well. And it's now grown, I think, to about 25 members. And we're not even Leeds-based, really, because we've got individuals from kind of wider West Yorkshire, Middlesbrough as part of the group. So it's gone a little bit wider as well. And originally, obviously, 
I set it up quite selfishly to think about our own sort of trauma-informed implementation and journey. And I soon realized, actually, there's a lot of people here doing their own work in their organization. So it very quickly morphed into this meeting, which was very much more about supporting each other. I think when you're doing some big system change like this, it can feel quite isolating, particularly if there's only one or two of you doing it in an organization. So I kind of quickly learn, actually, people really need that support. And also, you know, you'll know this yourself, David, and I'm sure other people can share this. Thinking about a trauma-informed journey can feel really overwhelming. You're almost like in the middle of this tangled web and there's kind of different threads going off. There's these massively connected parts. It can be really hard to understand, well, where do I start? Where do I go to? So very much about our, our group was about supporting people with that feeling, helping them, giving them a bit of direction, and also system change itself. And I think any trauma-informed work probably is system change, comes with resistance and it comes with difficulties and it comes with challenge. So again, it was very much in the early days about supporting each other with those challenges, with that resistance, motivating each other and just trying to inspire each other and just keep everything kind of moving along as well. Would you be okay sharing perhaps some of the challenges that you've had along the way the last couple of years? Yeah, I think the initial challenge is, again, there's this feeling, as I mentioned, that you're getting lost in this kind of maze. You're not exactly sure where to start. What do I focus on? And the more you kind of get stuck in there, the more how big the whole issue is. So understanding that and kind of, you know, thinking about your direction and what you want to include and when you're going to do what is, is a really big challenge. And I think we help people with that. But I think in the organizations, we definitely had challenges around commitment and buy in from staff members you know some people are very open to change some people are more resistant some people almost are thinking about what they're gonna lose some people get quite anxious with it we had some challenges around this being a, a tick box exercise in terms of our implementation you know why are you doing this what is your motives and that's one of the things that i've always thought about in terms of the steering group is when i reflect on our trauma-informed work I need to think to myself, what tangibly have we changed on the front line with our clients? And that's one of the reasons I'm so keen on this steering group to kind of push forward work, to share good practice and to really think about actually what are those tangibles and create those tangibles with other people. I think the other issue, which is definitely a challenge with this sort of work is, you know, there's a lot of it, you know. You can be thinking about all your policies and procedures, all the way you work, your tools, your risk assessments, your support planning, your strength-based work. So there's so much of it. And I think one of the things the steering group was designed to help with is to share the load of some of that work. You know, we've recently done this where we've got a subgroup that's come off the main group and we're working on moving from risk assessment to safety planning. And I know we've, you've had kind of that, that sort of talk on your podcast before, David, and I think that's a really important journey for us as well and it's nice to be part of other organizations doing that together so we're sharing the load and the other challenge we've had as well is inconsistency so with different organizations doing their own thing across different organizations and different services you can get a really inconsistent approach and one of the things quite early on in the steering group we decided was actually we want to bring that together we'd looked at transition between services we acknowledge that actually a lot of our clients go from one service to another or are working with us with multiple services at the same time. And these are services all on the steering group as well, quite often. So we wanted to improve that transition. We wanted to improve consistency and we want to have people who use our services to have a very similar experience and ideally a trauma informed experience.
you mentioned about some of the successes being this subgroup that looked at safety planning. How did that become, I, I guess, an area of focus for you? I guess we'd been, we had a lot of guest speakers early on in terms of the work we did. And one of those guest speakers was Anthony from the Wallach. And he gave us quite an inspiring talk about his journey from safety, from risk assessment to safety planning. And I kind of felt like, actually, that's that's something I would like to do as my organization. But why don't we do it as part of the steering group? Because we were looking for kind of a bigger project. And I think this really fitted that because we had a lot of information. We had a lot of encouragement from Anthony himself. And we also had the steering group. And a lot of us hadn't got to that point in terms of safety planning. So it felt like actually this is a natural project for this steering group to push on with. So I think that's kind of how it came about. One of the things I've learned about both the steering group and I think trauma-informed work is there seems to be generosity of sharing. People are passionate about this and they want to share resources. And that's partly why I love being involved in this work. You know, I think generous leadership is really important and, you know, helping people and supporting people, which is partly the point of this steering group, is also a great way to network. You know, I've met some great people as part of this steering group. Despite all of the success of bringing people to the table, are there any groups or any sort of organisations that you would like to join that perhaps haven't had the opportunity to join yet for a variety of different reasons? Yeah, probably. I mean, I've always been wary about um, expanding it too quickly and advertising it and promoting it too much. So it's kind of organically grown over the last couple of years. Um, And also, you know, I'm not an expert. You know, I don't pretend to be an expert. I just kind of co-chair the meetings. Hmm. So I am a little bit wary about expanding it too much and taking on something that almost over-promising. But what I would be really interested in is connecting some of the networks and forums that already exist in Leeds. Because obviously, you know, there's our kind of little steering group, but there's other work that's going on as well. And I think connecting some of that together, I think, is probably one of our ambitions for 2023. So what are some of the the other ambitions that you have for the steering group moving forward in 2023? I think build on on what we're doing, uh, making sure we're progressing with work. um, And I think safety planning is a key part of that. I think we've lost a little bit in terms of co-production and lived experience. So I'd definitely like to get back to that a little bit more. As I said previously, connecting with some of these wider sort of networks, I think that's really important as well. And one of the things that, shockingly, I still haven't quite finished yet is making sure we're formalizing our terms of reference. So I think for a group like this, it's really important that we've got a shared vision. And I think we generally do have this kind of common purpose but I need to kind of formalize that. We need to put that on a piece of paper and we need to agree to that and kind of refine that as we go along. We're doing a lot of work as well around embedding some of the things we started a year or two ago because it's very easy to have, you know, great ideas, put them into planned, but and then just expect them to kind of continue. And I think there's a lot of work to embed that work. Reflective practice, I think, is something you have to continually work at. And I think, you know, it's been very hit and miss across our service. So sometimes it's worked really well. In other teams, it's not worked so well. So I think we need to keep moving along with that as well. And I think continuing to work with other organizations, think about transitions and consistency of practice. You know, when we did the safety planning pilot launch, I think we had 10 different organizations there, not all attached to the steering group. And I kind of felt like 
why don't we do more of this work together as a collaboration across housing providers or housing support providers rather so i think more of that i think is it would be really beneficial what would be your top tips for setting up a steering group well book a date now so as soon as possible get a date in you got something to work to start small i think be consistent so every month every quarter I think to reassure people, you know, I'm definitely not an expert, anywhere near an expert in trauma-informed. So, you know, your role is to facilitate, not to provide that expertise. Just go for it, really. The other things I would say is think about, you know, you may have quite a number of individuals there. We've got to make sure that it's worthwhile. So people are getting something out. Now, that can be providing insight from external experts. It can be support and practical assistance can be fresh insights from people you know it can be all sorts of different things but you need to understand that they're getting something out of that as a chair or as somebody organizing a meeting you are kind of the steward of their time at that point so i think you need to take that responsibility quite seriously i like um thinking about progressing work so i mentioned the safety planning work you know making sure there's some sort of outputs from the meeting as well I think helping and supporting, as I mentioned earlier, and creating a group is a really effective networking strategy. And I've made lots of contacts through our, our steering group. Ideally, do some prep before the meetings. So you've got a good agenda. You kind of know the outcome. Inclusivity, I think, is really important. So we're people from different areas, different levels, different sectors, different roles. So a lot of these people are involved in some sort of implementation with their own organization. But I don't feel you need to be prescriptive about levels or roles or who comes. I think, you know, my, it's always been more the merrier. I think also it helps to have somebody else to co-chair with. So somebody who can support you, somebody who gives you a little bit of a check about, you know, what work you're doing or what's going to work for the, for the meeting. So definitely a second opinion, a co-chair or rotating chair, I think is really good. I think it's good to have elements that create a sense of progression. So it feels like you're getting some wins as a group. So in terms of our steering group, we have this kind of, it's like a language table of trauma-informed language, what we may have used previously and what we're trying to work towards. And that's something we build on in every meeting. So I think that's something which I quite like. As I mentioned earlier, a shared vision, I think is really important. So hopefully people understand that vision. It's backed up by terms of reference. Um, it's mutually beneficial for everybody in the meeting. And ultimately, I guess trauma-informed is about relationships and connections, isn't it? And I think ideally your meeting should enhance that, which is why we found it's beneficial to move from an online meeting to face-to-face, because -face. I think you get a better relationships. It's easier to network. You get to know people better. It's also why I like kind of using silly check-ins just because you get, you know, you get to understand people and where they come from, their backgrounds and what their interests and likes are. You connect easier. What would you say you've, you've learned the most about yourself throughout this trauma-informed journey? I've, I think every step along the way, I feel like I've learned that this is definitely the right thing to do. So every further step, I felt like, yes, this was a good decision and it was the right decision and it continues to be the right decision. I also feel like you learn something new all the time when it comes to trauma-informed. Absolutely. It's also one of the things I say to people about a trauma-informed implementation is it affects you personally. So the way you think about your own personal relationships, your family, your friends, I think it does make you reflect upon that. And that to me is a real positive as well. I like to think that it's improved those relationships. 
and that's probably it really and also i think i've also understood you know the power of relationships and networking as part of the steering group i think that's been really beneficial and i think it's a key part of actually a role like mine where i'm a service lead i think that's really important and you know listening to other people's experiences talking about their best practice sharing ideas and resources has just been so massively beneficial for me yeah and you can't do any of this by yourself even thinking about an individual's recovery, let's say it's recovery from substance misuse, for example, generally that involves somebody else, the support of another. So I feel like if we're thinking about trauma-informed implementation, you do have to maximize other people and what they can provide as well. I think that pretty much brings us to an end. So I just want to, to say at this point, thank you very much. And if if people would like to know more about the service that you, that you run or perhaps would like to get in touch, how how could they how could they do that? Um, so they, they can obviously see the Beacon service on our website, which is Turning Lives Around. And if you Google Turning Lives Around Leads, um, you should be able to find that. And I am on Twitter at James underscore Allen underscore TLA. Thank you very much. No, thank you for having me, David. Much appreciated. Cheers. Thank you. Welcome back. That was this week's guest discussing the trauma-informed working group. So, Andrew, what's your, what's your thoughts then? What, what, what would you say is the core theme about taking this forward, whether it's an internal or an external working group? What, what for you are the key themes on this? The key theme that runs throughout the entirety of a trauma-informed approach is collaboration. And I think this kind of encompasses everything. It's it's opening yourself up to different ideas, hearing out people's different perspectives, people's points of view, being open to different procedures, different ways, different pathways. I think that that is one of the main things about this is keeping an open mind two new ways some may have better ideas than you some may some may not uh, things may work for you they may not but it's the having the openness and dynamism to actually take that on board and work within it and then to work in the spirit spirits of co- collaboration openly and calmly with others to make sure that you know to push for the most positive outcomes for everyone that is effectively what one of the most important parts for me for the entirety of the trauma-informed process if we're talking about the culture that particularly third sector organisations have had over the last 10, 15 years, it's, we've almost had the normalisation of this competitive commissioning where you are going out and you are fighting other third sector organisations for contracts. And what used to be a culture about sharing and collaboration kind of got lost a little bit through no one's fault of their own without getting into too much pointing fingers at governments or anything, but from a third sector organization perspective, it was just about staying afloat, doing what you needed to do, which naturally, as a, you know, again, thankfully this has started to be reduced, but you saw organizations close the doors, hold things in. We need to keep this to ourselves. We can't give our competitors an edge. But in the last few years, we've seen people start to reflect on that and think, well, we can't do that. We can't continue like this. It's not healthy. As you mentioned, that collaboration is key. And if we're not thinking about that, we're missing such a key trick on this. You know, we're, we're missing the whole value of bouncing ideas around, sharing ideas, um, and understanding that doing things in silo will get you nowhere. You've got to open it up and you've got to be willing 
to 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 take on board feedback and and see other ways of doing things and sharing your own ways of doing things as well from from the criminal justice perspective which is where i'm from you you hear in reviews of major major crimes that one of the main things that needs to be addressed is the barriers between agencies that lack of continuity and movement in those agencies and that is something that this approach, these these steering groups can help reduce. It can help reduce those barriers. And that in itself can only be viewed as a positive. The same challenge, what you just said then, is often seen in so many safeguarding reviews. You know, when you talk about, um, you know, vulnerable children or vulnerable adults, so many times when the system fails, it's because people haven't communicated. You hear things like, oh, no, we can't share things because of data protection and all this closing up shop without realising that actually sharing when there's a valid reason to keep people safe, it, it benefits everyone. And it, it does start to, you know, it, there's, there's four letters, I think, a few years ago that put the fear of God into everyone, which, which was GDPR, mm-hmm. that came, which really, when you look at what GDPR did, it just strengthened our data protection principles. It just strengthened everything. And yet people just saw that as another barrier to not share, to not talk. Add into that that competitive commissioning or criminal justice telling you know internally to shut up shop and do whatever they need to do. You know these whole culture shifts have meant that people have worked in silo. But now people are starting to look at things, particularly through this trauma informed lens, and say, "We're not going to share information for the sake of it. We're not going to share personal data, but the information we can share as teams." To, to think about how we can benefit all our service users, let's start to do that. Let's start to share ideas. Let's sh- start to share the good practice because ultimately that's the best way of doing things. Particularly if you think about people with multiple and complex needs, they don't just access one service. They might go to their probation officer in the morning, their mental health worker early afternoon, their drugs worker late afternoon. Then the next day they're, they're seeing someone to do with physical health problems. Then they're off to see their housing worker. Often we're engaging with a range of different services and we're only ever seeing a piece, a tiny piece of that person's life, piece of that puzzle. If you've got a working group, a steering group where all these agencies are getting together, sharing good practice, sharing ways of working, ultimately we're ensuring that this individual gets the best support they can get. You're going to be hard pressed to find a catch-all process, something that works perfectly for every single person. But what, you're, what we're hoping for here and what we're trying to achieve is a practice and a process that catches as many as possible. You know, keep those cracks as small as possible so as few people fall down as possible. Um, and, and I'm sure you, you, you'd agree that in my years of working, in terms of the, the policies and the methods that I've seen implemented in my time, this to me seems like the best way to catch the most. Yes. Hundred percent. Otherwise, I've wasted a lot of my professional life. <laughs> um, so I, I think it's probably just it's probably just worth ending on a bit of positivity. Why not? And and for me, all I would say to people is if if you are thinking about some sort of internal working group, my top tips to you are get your get your services aware of this approach. Don't try and run before you can walk with this. Get a basic level of education, training, again, whatever term you want to use out there, 
to all your staff or as many staff as you can that gives them that education, that background, that understanding and understanding the why. So as as uh, as we were both saying earlier on, people feel part of the process rather than against it. Then consider building up your internal working group by using things like trauma-informed champions, working in a range of different roles, a range from top end of the hierarchy down to the front line, everyone coming at this with a different perspective, sharing ideas, sharing processes. When you feel comfortable with that, when you feel like you've got on top of things, to a, to a level, or at least um, or at least you are starting to talk about this, becoming trauma aware, then consider how can you get involved in the wider community? How can you get involved or start to build up a, a, a trauma-informed steering group? If, like uh, the example we've used today in Leeds, there's already one out there, brilliant. Find out, get talking, get invited, get a seat to that table. If there isn't one, consider, are you in the best place to do it? If not, speak to other services, speak to commissioners. Just be curious. Ask those questions. No matter how big an organisation you are, whether you are, like I say, a third sector or you're a statutory, everyone can play a part in this. It's, it's like anything. Just being a bit curious, believing this is the right way of doing it and seeing where it takes you. In meetings like these, you may think that, you know, it may turn some people off because you may think that you need to be relentlessly positive. You don't. What you need to be, you, you need two simple things. First of all, you need to be open-minded. Open-minded to believe that maybe your way isn't the best. Open-minded to new ways. And then secondly, you need to check your ego at the door yeah. because it's not about you. And any, any suggestions or improvements on the way you go about your practice are not personal insults. They're just suggestions on how things could be done better. Do you know what? That's such a good point about the not feeling that you've got to be optimistic all the time. I'll be honest with you. I think sometimes a bit of pessimism in these meetings can be good because it gets it out on the table. And sometimes that pessimism is there for a reason because we are hitting barriers. And sometimes that's a, that's a good thing because we know if we are going to be hitting barriers or there's something over here, we're putting a lot of time and resources that we're not perhaps getting a lot out of. Maybe we can put our focus on something else. Because as I say to everyone, unfortunately, no matter how well you want to be uh, as being a trauma informed organization, you are still up against a lot of society and I guess wider government policy that just don't always allow this. So you have to think about that this is a journey. This isn't an either or. This is not binary. You're either trauma informed or you're not. You're all on the journey. So if you are faced with a bit of negativity and a bit of pessimism, listen to that voice. Where's that coming from? Because I, I guarantee you, it isn't people trying to be difficult. It's people just trying to deal with the difficulties and challenges that are out there as well. And just one last bit. Just It just occurred to me when you mentioned there about a little bit of well-placed pessimism not being too bad a thing. Especially when you're putting the plan together. A little bit of well-placed pessimism, something that can look to punch holes in the plan. That's a brilliant thing because the less holes that pessimism can punch in it, the better the plan. Exactly. So basically, I think what me and Andrew are saying, if you need some pessimism, get in touch. We'll, we'll, we'll give you it in buckets. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a journey. Absolutely, it's a journey. And I, and I think that's... That kind of brings us nicely to, I think, the end of, of our two part, our first two-parter. And when I say, as I mentioned earlier on, this isn't just the end of it, because this is uh, the, the world of being trauma-informed is just ongoing. But I think 
as an introduction, this two-parter feels about right. And I do think we can have follow-up ones, in particular, even the trauma-informed champion model. We can go into a lot more depth into that. Again, the working group, we can revisit that in a few months' time as well. There are just so many things changing all the time. I imagine even listening back to this pod in a year's time, we'll we'll think, well, how much has things changed in a year? But again, that's the joy of this. It's constantly changing, constantly shifting. So again, if you have any thoughts or reflections around trauma-informed practice, you want to give any feedback, get in touch, be a guest, please, please, please do get in touch. We do really appreciate your inputs. And if you're involved in any steering groups, get in touch and let us know how they're going. Well, yeah, absolutely. Even better. We only know what we know about. So thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate uh, your time. I have been David Gill. And I've been Andrew James. And this has been Frontline. Frontline.